Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This will be our post-draft review for the 2018 NFL Draft as pertains to our Cleveland Browns. And it was an interesting, wasn't it? We will get to all that, of course. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. You can find me at FTBL Sickness on Twitter. You can find the podcast at the Browns note. And like I said, an interesting draft note. I had a great trip up to Northern California to watch it with the old folks, Sen Soga from my old football sickness days, and my buddy Adam Jones, who has a glorious view of the northeastern portion of the San Francisco Bay from his uh, from his deck in the back. And so we watched the entirety of the draft from Jones's place. We spent some time out and about the Bay Area. We played golf at Tilden Park. Your boy shot an 89. Send dogs out, shot a 99. It wasn't the prettiest day of golf, but it was a gorgeous day on the course. And, uh, and we managed to have a pretty sweet closer. We caught the first game of the Golden State Warriors New Orleans Pelicans series from rather decent seats, if I don't say so myself, or do, as the case may be. But that's all aside. It was a good weekend. I hope you enjoyed your draft. And I suspect that for many of you, it started not unlike Gomer Pyle. And I do realize that's an outdated reference for some of you, but surprise, surprise, surprise. Baker Mayfield, the number one overall pick. Now, as you know, if you listen to this podcast with any regularity, there were plenty of people who thought Baker Mayfield was both deserving and clearly the number one overall player in this draft. Pete Smith was one of those people. We had him on this podcast to discuss that very notion. And frankly, he made a pretty good case. And clearly, there were people, not only in the Browns organization, but around the league who bought it. So really, when it came down to that, I I guess I wasn't really surprised that Baker Mayfield was the pick, but I like I tweeted a number of times, you were going to have to unsew my head from the carpet, Clark Griswold style, if an NFL lifer like John Dorsey with a staff of NFL likers, li- lifers like Elliot Wolf and Alonzo Highsmith and Scott McLuhan, and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, um, who were supposedly going to ignore analytics and take the traditional view of, quote-unquote, real football players. If you'd have told me that all those dudes were going to take a six-foot quarterback, number one overall, uh, yeah, I'd have been a little bit surprised. But Baker Mayfield, the case is persuasive because of all those things we talked about with Pete, and we'll talk about that and much, much more with our guy Brendan Leister here in just a moment. But I wanted to address at least a couple of things. I mean, there's this notion out there that the Browns and you know I got a little bit of this from my dad so I've already had a chance to uh, to to make this case and I, I think it's pretty clear sort of what is real and what isn't at this point or at least some of it is um, the idea that Mayfield and Ward weren't good enough players to be taken where they are well it's pretty clear from to me the bulk of the reporting that Mayfield was going to be gone um, whether it was one two or three it seems like a lot of people have come to the conclusion that they certainly were at this place before the draft. There was an awful lot of smoke about this, but that the New York Jets were as low as Baker Mayfield was going to get. That was absolutely the bulk of the reporting before. That's certainly what Mayfield's team thought. And so, I mean, I, 
I'm not saying it's a perfect assumption, but it feels like a safe one to me. You have that Peter King reporting um, from earlier today about how, number one, they weren't getting much action at four anyway, so trading down out of those spots if they weren't going to take somebody wasn't going to happen. Um, but, but more to the point, you had Dave Gettleman's quote, which was something along the lines of, and I may not get it exactly precisely right, but if you check his post-draft presser, there's a quote in there that is something to the effect of, well, if Mayfield's gone, we're going Barkley. Well, that seems to imply that one can assume either the Giants wanted to take Mayfield or they had a deal for somebody that wanted to take Mayfield. Baker Mayfield was going early, folks. That was happening. And it seems pretty clear to me, and it probably should to you, that the Browns pretty thoroughly decided he was their guy. Now, we'll get to whether or not we think Hugh Jackson's words about how thoroughly he was uh, convinced with Baker Mayfield is uh, more Hughism, or whether we give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, but again, there was other stuff. There was the Jeff Dar- Darlington tweet coming into the draft about how he's talked to a number of offensive coaches around the league, and none of them could stop talking about Baker Mayfield. There was the Sean Payton stuff way back when, along with the the Scott McLuhan stuff that we've known about for months. There were a lot of NFL folks who have been pretty all in on Baker Mayfield for a long time. And then there was the Sean McVay combine story. And if you haven't heard it, Sean McVay, the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams, he of the really innovative and fun and touchdown scoring offense, um, McVeigh happened to be sitting next to, or happened to be sitting on the same flight that Mayfield was on on the way out to Indianapolis for the combine from LA, where Mayfield was training. And McVeigh called him over. He sat next to him for the plane ride, and McVeigh got off the plane just gushing about the kid and said things like, "If I didn't already have my guy, we'd be coming up to get you no matter what." And so, look, you can be down on the pick. I get liking other guys better, as I said on here many times. I'd have taken Josh Rosen. But I also said, I get it when people tell me they'd take Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold and in even some cases, Lamar Jackson. And so here we are. We got one of the quarterbacks that at least the vast majority of of us thought was a worthwhile or viable shot and a real franchise QB. You got him at number one so we can dispense, thank the Lord, with all of these, oh, the Browns have been screwing around a quarterback. The Browns have been passing on quarterbacks. The Browns never do anything at quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. It's over now. That part's gone. Here comes the real roller coaster. Going to be fun. Going to be fun. I would advise you all, if you haven't, have a look at the Behind Baker documentary series that Baker Mayfield's people put together. It's at BehindBaker.com. It's also on uh, Facebook. And it's really good. It's really good. There are a lot of cool moments in there. The moment he gets drafted is really outstanding if you're into those kinds of things. Uh, It's clear that he didn't know until just a couple of minutes before they actually called his name off the card at the draft that he was going to be the number one overall pick. So there's some fun draft day drama there. It's a little bit Vontae Mackish when he finds out. It's cool. It's a cool moment. There's the moment on Building the Browns, episode four, where Mayfield is being walked through uh, through the Browns facilities. And he and Hugh bump into Greg Williams, and Greg Williams is given his usual guff and says something about, get some. And Baker Mayfield, as he's walking away, barely paying any mind to Greg Williams, said, I'm going to get more than just some. And, you know, 
I can root for the kid. So that's going to be fun. I hope he ends up being able to play, but we'll find that all out in due course. I'd also ask you to look, if you're into really digging into your guys, the the series of articles that Robert Klemko did on Monday Morning Quarterback is really good. Everything Pete Smith wrote at uh, NFL Spin Zone, and again, you can check out our earlier episode on Baker Mayfield. Pete was a big Baker Mayfield honk. If you want to just search search Twitter and Pete uh, with Mayfield's name, I'm sure you'll get about two billion tweets, and they'll all be positive. Um, there's a lot of good pro football focus work out there on Mayfield, and that's what it comes down to to me is, look, the numbers clearly said this guy was the best. Even if you skewed him, it, this guy was the best. So there's that. Then there's the fact that all these football dudes seem to really like him and seem to think he was the best player. So when it comes right down to it, you can argue with the pick all you want, but it is eminently defensible. So if you're in the camp that says, oh, this is crazy, or they obviously blew it, well, you miss me with that. Anyway, we'll see how that part turns out. The rest of the class for me, a little bit uneven, and I'll get into that more once we get Brendan on here, which we will do right now. Mr. Brendan Leister joining me on the Browns Note podcast. All right, and I am glad to be joined now by my man Brendan Leister out there in the heart of Ohio. You can find him at Brendan Leister on Twitter. My friend, how are you? Doing great, man. How about yourself? I am in full recovery following a, f- a splendid draft weekend up in the Bay Area. I mentioned it in the introduction. It was, um, it was festive. It was extremely gluttonous. Um, there was more than enough beer to last a lifetime and quite a bit of grilled meat. And a lovely view. How about yours? It's good, man. Just enjoyed watching the draft. I didn't have all that going on. I wish I did, but it was mostly just me and the dog and Twitter. <laughs> and, and that so, crisp Ohio stuff. football air, no doubt. Um, yep, exactly. An interesting draft. You know, um, for me, I was talking about the Mayfield pick in the open. Obviously, we'll get to that. But let me run through them real quick, and then we'll just sort of chat about it as we see fit. Obviously, 1-1 Baker Mayfield, quarterback, Oklahoma, will I'm sure dig far too deeply into the quarterback position, but it's interesting. It's semi-surprising, and we have all kinds of thoughts about it, so we'll get to that. Denzel Ward, a pick that I suspect we both liked a good bit, even though we would have been just fine with Bradley Chubb. Um, we haven't really gotten to circle up on these, so I look forward to kind of feeling you out on the on the balance of those kinds of picks. The Austin Corbett pick, I wasn't really of the mind that OL was a big need. The offensive line to me was pretty well you know, addressed, but I'm also not against picking up really good prospects at those kinds of positions. So we'll come back to that. Nick Chubb, the running back from Georgia, probably my, if you pinned me down and made me decide that would probably be my favorite pick in the draft. I just think the guy's great. Probably the pick I least understood is the Chad Thomas pick. Maybe you'll talk me out of that. Antonio Callaway, the risk from Florida, the big time wide receiver, at least talent wise. Is he a big-time headache? We'll find out. Jannard Avery, a guy that I knew a little bit from Memphis. I've seen a couple of cut-ups here in the last few days. Uh, A guy that I am certain is going to make the team and will probably make it better. Uh, Whether he starts or not is kind of irrelevant to me, but again, we'll go through all these. Damian Ratley, the wide receiver uh, out of ATM, and then 
Simeon Thomas, a defensive back from the home of Emory Hunt, what is now called the University of Louisiana, but has at various times been University of Louisiana Lafayette, and also, I believe, Southwest Louisiana State, the Ragin' Cajuns. But again, a big class. They gave up a little bit as they moved around. They made some trades uh, in terms of sort of giving up a little you know, draft slotting here or moving up there for guys that they apparently wanted. Give me, before we start digging into each guy, give me your sort of 20,000-foot view uh, of the overall class and the approach. Overall, um, I was happy that they got their quarterback at number one, obviously. We discussed that all along, that it needed to be a quarterback at one. And although it wasn't the guy that we expected, they got their guy, and that's all that matters when you're looking at what a team does on draft day. Um, It was interesting at four, uh, without digging into the individual players yet, just the the f- philosophically, you know, if they took the highest cornerback, uh, this was the highest cornerback selection earliest on draft day since 1998 when Charles Woodson went fourth. Um, Denzel Ward was the highest. So that, that kind of tells you what they thought of him. Clearly, they didn't have a trade down that they felt was worth the risk of missing out on him. And they clearly viewed him as a more valuable um, piece to add to the team in the short term and long term than uh, Bradley Chubb would have been at four. So I have no issue with that pick. Um, offensive line made sense just because, um, just because in the long term, I think adding a guy that's versatile that can play any spot, you never know when an injury is going to happen. Um, Hubbard's on a short term deal. Treader. Some people like him. Some people don't. Zeitler might be overpaid. So really, you've got one guy that is for sure a long-term, you know, great player on that offensive line and Joel Batonio. So having a guy that can play any of those spots is is valuable. Um, Nick Chubb, great, great player. You could argue with positional value, but I mean, it's the top of the second round. I think if you're going to take a great running back there, it's good good value. Um, Thomas, I'm all about adding to the defensive line. They liked him. And then, um, those day three picks, I think we could just get into them a little later, but that's kind of my, my view of the guys that they used those first five that we discussed a lot before the draft. Yeah. Those are, those are the ones that really are going to be the determining factor as to whether or not this draft is a success or not, barring some, Holy crap, superstar from the sixth round or, you know, Jannard Avery becoming a 20-sack guy. I mean, it's really going to be those, the way they employed the first and second round picks, to me, that makes the biggest difference. Obviously, they used a pretty key third round pick to go get Tyrod Taylor. And I wonder, you know, to me, there's an argument out there, and I wanted to sort of sweep this one away because I, I just disagree with it. Maybe, and I think we probably think philosophically similarly on this, but maybe I'm wrong. There, there has been a sentiment in some segments of the, the Browns draft audience or whatever, the football world, that, um, you know, hey, that, that Tyrod Taylor trade now suddenly looks like a wasted first pick in the third round. And to me, I, I just couldn't disagree more. It, it's not maybe peak value. I, I can, I'll listen to that, but look – at a position where you're you're desperate to have some production, you've never had a decent player there in two well, 
you know what I'm trying to say. They haven't played any good quarterback in years and years and years. And they were gonna tra- they were gonna draft a quarterback number one overall. So to me, getting a solid ball preserving and by that I mean the football. <laughs> he doesn't turn the ball over. He's going to keep you on schedule. As long as you provide him with some running game and some guys to throw to, you're going to be in pretty much every game. You're going to have a shot to win a bunch of them. And that is not true, at least with any measure of confidence, with a rookie quarterback. And so to me, that first pick in the third round, while it was probably really hard to give up, it's for a quarterback in the National Football League who's going to start, hopefully, a bunch of games for you this year. I had no problem with it. Yeah, I think some keys to it are, by all accounts, Tyrod Taylor has a great work ethic. He's going to help set the culture. I would venture to guess that the past few years, I don't think the young quarterbacks probably had a very good idea of what it takes to really be a great player in the NFL, what it takes to be a great quarterback. Ding, 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 uh, ding, ding, heard, ding, 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 or yeah. even a, or even just a pro, how to prepare, when to exactly. show up, yeah. how to be a grown-up. And all of that stuff, this is the stuff we have talked about ad nauseum on this podcast because we've had so many young quarterbacks just completely thrown into the fire. This is avoiding that. And for that reason alone, that 65th pick to me, a very good draft pick. Yeah, I mean, we just we heard Johnny Manziel come out and say Brian Hoyer didn't help him. Yeah. He didn't help him. He didn't get any help until his second year in the league with Josh McCown. So that tells you what the majority or at least some, I mean, he had Kyle Shanahan as a, as OC that year. And he says that he had no help. You know, he had no idea what it took to be an NFL quarterback. And I know we could say, Oh man, is a unique case. Well, no, I'd no, say that not that's probably that not, not in that aspect. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When it comes to 21, 22, 23-year-old quarterbacks coming into the league, I would say that most of them don't have any idea what working hard means by NFL pro starting quarterback, starting multiple years and getting tons of starts and understanding what that takes from a work ethic standpoint. I don't think that those guys have any grasp of it. Just coming from college, it's such a huge leap. And uh, I think Tyrod Taylor just helps set that that whole culture. I mean, you've already seen he's working out with the receivers, um, with the skill players. He's already forming those relationships with them like they should be. Um, and then like Drew Stanton, that's another pickup where it helps with that as well, because he's been around the league. He's started games. He has a winning record. I mean, he's been around the NFL. So that combination is important. And as far as the 65th pick, it's worth it because it keeps Mayfield off the field if he's not ready. Because if you don't have Tyrod really the Taylor, the only qualifier that matters if he's not ready. If, and if you don't have Tyrod Taylor, then it's Drew Stanton against Baker Mayfield. And even if Mayfield's not ready, he's starting because with, he's better than with Drew Stanton. Probably, yeah, um, he's probably going to play better than Drew Stanton just off the bat. Yep, it's probably the way it's going to go. But with him versus Tyrod Taylor, he's going to really have to be ready. And playing at a pretty strong level to beat out Tyrod Taylor at any point this year. And that's important to his development, right? It's the same thing with, I mean, you know, when you look back on Russell Wilson, the only reason he got to play is because he flat out came in and took that job by the throat. And he was clearly better than a guy who had been productive on the NFL level, period. And even though, 
you know, Matt Flynn hadn't been productive on the NFL level to the, to the degree that Tyrod Taylor has at this point. Um, you know, I, I think it's beneficial to Mayfield, and that brings us back to the main point of this. Mayfield being the number one overall pick, and you can look at enough of what we know about this kid and assume that he is going to fit into a culture of working hard at it. That part, I think most people that have looked into Mayfield at all feel pretty confident that he's not going to be some off-the-field screw-around. Now, the, the maturity questions are a little aside. I don't think work ethic is the same question. I think he's going to work at it, and I think he's really friggin' smart. I think those two things are not really up for debate. And so, I mean, feel free to disagree with me, but you're going to have a case on your hands. Um, so I, I think we know Baker Mayfield's going to work. We know he's smart. The rest of it, we'll have to see, and that is why... The maturity stuff to me, I am so glad that they don't have to worry about him playing right away. He has time to move to Cleveland, learn how to be a grown-up in his own place where he's not going to class, and he has a real job that he's got to go to all day, every day for the rest of his life, even though in the NFL that's not the case. You, it takes a while to adjust to that reality no matter if you're a quarterback in the NFL or you're a CPA at Ernst & Young or you're some dude at a marketing firm, or you're in an art museum working on a curation job, or whatever. It takes a while to get used to the notion of being an adult for most people. I don't think it's going to take Baker Mayfield that long for that, but the idea that he has a nice, soft runway, I think is going to matter. And I look at that draft pick and I think, well, like you said, they got their guy. Because there's no way that you could look at that pick and think they had anything other, or at least that the most important decision makers in the, in the organization, and we'll get to who those may or may not be at this moment. Um, the, the key decision makers obviously were convicted about Baker Mayfield, right? Really convicted about it because they had options. They had legitimate viable options that everybody thought would or could or should go ahead of them. And so that part of it excites me. It eliminates all those old narratives about the Browns passing on quarterback or dicking around at quarterback or whatever people have wanted to say. As you project Mayfield, now that we know he's the guy, and look, let's assume for the sake of this discussion that he doesn't play for at least the first half of 2018, because ideally that's the case. Um, As you project what Todd Haley might do with him, and obviously this is sort of a, we're going to, pull a crystal ball out here because Todd Haley hasn't had exactly the same quarterback everywhere he's gone. The guys he played with in KC are a little different than Ben, Ben Roethlisberger. And one assumes that Ben Roethlisberger gets pretty unique treatment from both the scheme and coaching standpoint. If you're looking at what, you know, Todd Haley's done in the past, which is a whole bunch of stuff, of course, and what, you know, Baker Mayfield has been successful at, how do you meld those things together? And what do you hope to see if and when Mayfield is somewhere on the field this year in 2018. Yeah. So to start off some things that I would do would be to get him some really deep drops from under center off play action, especially draw the linebackers up, get him open big throwing lanes where he can, or in big windows to throw the ball into similar to how he had in Oklahoma when they ran all the run pass options and all the heavy play action, Um, They had a really strong run game at Oklahoma. So I think having Chubb, Duke, and Carlos Hyde is is good because no matter what, they should have a good run game to lean on. Um, Get them 
keep them on schedule, get them into good down and distances. You don't want them to be in third and seven plus cause you don't want any quarterback to be in third and seven plus ideally. So you get them those deep drops off play action, get him deep pockets to deal with where he's not dealing with so much chaos in the pocket. He's not dealing with so much, you know, a muddy pocket around him, so to speak. Um, I think that was something he dealt with very, very infrequently at Oklahoma. Um, teams rushed three a lot. They dropped eight. Um, his offensive line did a great job of, you know, protecting, who the defense brought for the most part. And he had a lot of time to throw in the pocket. So you want to try to simulate that as much as possible, had a lot of open receivers running around the field and, and also try to get the ball out of his hands quickly too. So it can't all be deep drops. Obviously um, there, there should be some three step also a lot of stuff from shotgun. Cause he's played in shotgun so much and so much of the past game now in the NFL is from shotgun, but just, having him read the defense, get the ball out of his hands quickly. Let me, let me ask you about sort of a, I guess, a specific branch of that thought. It does seem to me, and again, this is sort of a, no, it's not sort of, it's a definite layman's, layman's observation and um, sort of with less depth than I've been watching these guys uh, previously. But the, the past couple of years, it does seem to me that I've seen Haley do a good amount of, um, a, a good amount of quick game with Roethlisberger to the likes of Antonio Bryant and uh, Martavis, Antonio Bryant, it's pretty good, Antonio Brown and Martavis Bryant and whatnot. Um, and I don't know whether they did a whole bunch of RPO type stuff, but correct me if I'm wrong, can't you mix and meld a bunch of that stuff in order to give, look, Mayfield's going to get some production and defined reads out of that stuff because it will be ultimately familiar to him. And those looks look, the corners are going to be better and the pass rush is going to be better, but ultimately the beater for a given coverage is the beater for that coverage, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so, yes, you can actually, you can mix and match. So with the RPO stuff, yeah, Todd Haley has done that a good amount in Pittsburgh and and Hugh Jackson even did did it a lot in Cincinnati with Andy Dalton. Um, And what you do on an RPO is you call a run play. So the quarterback obviously sticks the ball in the belly of the running back. So they, they mesh. That's what you call it. And they're reading a specific defender, typically on the second level, sometimes the third level. Um, so a defensive back at times, they did that. Definitely. They definitely did that at Oklahoma, but you probably won't see as much of it in the NFL because teams, because officials don't call illegal man downfield um, as often in college in the NFL, they don't really get away with that. But anyway, you read a second level defender. So like a linebacker, if he steps up, the quarterback pulls the ball and throws behind him, like on a slant route or on a hitch or on a, you know, just a quick route where that defender is in conflict in his zone and he can't defend it. If that defender Mayfield killed people with his tight end on these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and they're tight end to see them incorporate Najoku doing Mark mm-hmm. Andrews stuff. That makes a ton of sense yeah. to me. Yeah, definitely. And Andrews actually played in the slot a lot. I mean, their true tight end type player was actually the the fullback, 36. He was an undrafted guy. But, but yeah, they, they did a lot of different things like that. You can call, you know, pop, uh, pop pass where the guy runs up the seam. You read the linebacker. He comes up. You throw it right behind him on the pop pass, and it's free yards. Um, another, um, another thing that, 
another key to it, I should say, is if the linebacker drops back in coverage at the snap or he um, stands in place, then the quarterback would hand the ball off because obviously the linebacker isn't stepping up and reading his run keys. So, you know, he's not really a threat in the run game if he's backing up. Yeah, well, and in a world where what you're trying to get is reasonable chunks of yardage, you know, you're not expecting this play to necessarily get 14 yards. You're trying to get four, right? Or a few Stand more than that. Head. Yeah, you're you're staying ahead of the ahead of the downs. And one of the things I'm actually semi confident about is that that's a concept. I, my watch of Mayfield leads me to believe that's a concept he understands and believes is important. You know, and I I don't know that every quarterback coming out of college gets that. I don't think the last guy did. Uh, and and you know, it's a it's a simple relatively obvious and yet often not heated thing and to have a guy who understands and to me there is a at least an occupational maturity to that um to be able to understand that I can't do all of this all at once Rome wasn't built in a day I can't do it all by myself I need to take chunks I need to be methodical about getting down the field and scoring touchdowns that second half against your buckeyes and a, there were I, there were really a bunch of games where I could point to, but the second half against the Buckeyes is the one that sticks out to me because that game where I think Ohio State was ranked number two in the country and they just littered with NFL defenders, and it was a very low-scoring game for the first two-and-a-half quarters, and mm-hmm. somewhere in there Mayfield figured out how to just march it down the fucking field. And... There were a couple of throws that were moments where you just had to accept that this was going to happen. And those kinds of things only happen to the truly prepared, at least in my estimation. Um, That's how Tom Brady wins. That's how guys like Drew Brees win. And so at least from that standpoint, I'm really excited to see what a guy like Mayfield can do. (laughs) Except I keep coming back to I'm not so sure about the coaching and I don't think the organization is run by a good owner, so I worry that we're going to get to see any of this come to fruition. But let's assume for the rest of this podcast that that's not true. Um, and, and so as you look forward to, look, again, I think, I think the ideal here is Mayfield doesn't see the field much this year. Um, so I don't want to talk about what would it be like if he does so much as what do you think it ideally looks like when he's ready? You know what I mean? I, I, let's, let's assume that this plays out somewhat like a planned operation and Mayfield doesn't see the field. What does it look like if he's actually prepared? I think he can definitely be a solid starter in the NFL. That's, that's how I viewed him all along. I, I have issues with projecting him as like Drew Brees or some top five quarterback in the league like when I studied him I you'd have had problems projecting Drew Brees as that coming out of college so I think that's one of those things that's impossible to do to a kid oh yeah definitely and and honestly I didn't say any guy in this class was no doubt top five I mean I don't do that when I project quarterbacks but I do think that some guys I would say some guys elevate the guys around them better than others and with him I had trouble separating his talent from the surroundings and the circumstances and the offense and the weapons around him. So that was something I struggled with, but just projecting him forward. I think, 
I think he definitely has the talent to be a solid starter all along. I've, I've compared him to Jeff Garcia, and I know that Browns fans don't like that comparison, but he threw for 26,000 yards in the NFL. He started his career at 29 years old. He was very good in a West Coast offense, which is I, th- I think that's a great system for, for Baker Mayfield. You get the ball out of his hands quickly. Let him read the I'd defense have quickly. I'd Shanahan's when, offense. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a West Coast offense, too. I mean, it's getting the ball out of the quarterback's hands, defining reads. It's just making the quarterback's job so much easier. Yeah, if it was a Shanahan or a McVay type offense, I would feel better about it in year one. But like you said, thankfully, I don't think he sees the field much in year one unless he's just absolutely dominated camp and everything. And then he's clearly ready to go and maybe he wins rookie of the year in that circumstance. But I mean realistically let's think he plays only once they're out of contention and maybe not at all if he's not ready so like (laughs) mid-october yeah exactly (laughs) true but um but yeah i think he has the ability to be a solid starter he he's very good at throwing on the run that's another thing i i meant to say before if i was an offensive coordinator i would definitely have him do plenty of boots and rollouts off play action getting him on the edge He's very accurate throwing on the run, and he, he's got the quickness to make people miss. He's not going to outrun anybody in the NFL, so to speak. But, no, but, but he'll, he'll make get you some yardage occasionally, and, yeah. he, and he'll, get you, oh, he, he'll get you a first down here and there. And that's, um, He has yeah, he has the foot speed to pick up first downs, and that's really all you need is just little chunks here and there to move the chains. A back-breaking third down, you know, four-yard run exactly. can be huge. Russell Wilson yeah. kills people even when he's not running for 30 yards. You know, just he'll extend drives two or three times a game where it's really not his athleticism, but his smarts that makes the play. And yeah. the threat of his athleticism is always there, of course. And that won't be as big a, a proponent of or a component of Mayfield's game. But he's he does play similar, you know, with a similar eye toward making the smart decision. Right. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, for, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I would compare his athletic ability, honestly, to like Andy Dalton. I mean, Andy Dalton's a much better runner than people give him credit for. Um, he he's broken the Browns back a bunch of Absolutely. times where they would they some would some of them on Hugh Jackson coverage. play calling even. Yeah, I mean, man to man coverage. He sees it. He takes off on third down and he picks up fifteen yards and gets down, protects himself. They get in field goal range. They kick it. They take the lead. You know that that's happened with Browns Bengals in the past multiple times so i think he's yeah similar athlete to andy dalton outside the pocket inside the pocket i think mayfield's probably better at moving around the pocket i would say than dalton but but yeah similar athletes well he's certainly less frantic than dalton i would say i i've never felt like you know dalton did have the one stretch to me and it was most of a season where he looked really comfortable but um yeah, and he probably looked comfortable. Now that I think of it, going back to TCU, Dalton looks pretty comfortable. But the, you know, the one thing before we and we should move beyond quarterback because I'm sure we'll have lots of opportunities to discuss the career of Young Baker. Um, but the, one of the things that you and I definitely agree on is the value of experience. And Baker Mayfield has 46 starts at the college level, and that is to me, that's a huge deal. That's one of my certainly my top five most important factors as to how I look at guys experience really matters to me it's part of that Bill Parcells list that doesn't matter to me much but it's worth noting 
Um, I just, it matters to me. I just think there's so much value in having to go through the process of preparing for games, of having to understand how to relate to different teammates, of having to be in different game situations where you're not always running people out of the gym. You know, I, it, it's, I remember Pete had a stat on the Baker Mayfield uh, episode where it was Baker Mayfield started 14 games against top 25 competition. Sam Darnold started 24 games. You know what I mean? Mm. And so yeah. I, to me, that's a, that's a pretty significant advantage. And especially when you look at the numbers and, and the, the trajectory of Baker Mayfield's career, that dude went to New York three times. Three times he got invited to the Heisman ceremony. And it got better each year. Are you sure? It was three times. I think it was two times. It got better each year. Yeah. (laughs) And it was ultimately the two most efficient, productive seasons in the history of college football. So if you think about it in terms of give the kid a chance to learn what the hell he's supposed to do, surround him with reasonable talent, coach him well, I mean, it sure seems like a formula that ought to work. I don't know if it's three or two to answer your question. Pete said it was yeah, three. I think so it's two. Pete said it was three. So if he got it wrong, you've both now fucked up an important stat on my podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> related to your favorite quarterback this year. So we'll it's just call it a watch. Unimportant now because yeah. he's not playing for uh, the Browns. <laughs> that's right. But <laughs> I'm not on the Jets note. <laughs> no, not yet. Anyway, go Rams. Um, I got to tell you, as a side note. There was a little bit of me that was hurt that I didn't get to put on my Rams hat last Thursday. <laughs> there was a little bit of me that was, I knew going in that it wasn't going to be Josh Allen, that it was never going to happen. Um, but yeah, I thought about it. Um, and 11 picks. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did some interesting things with it. Um, but let's, let's stay on the offensive side of the ball as opposed to just walking you know chronologically through the picks let's walk through the offensive additions in the draft and how they'll fit into the offense I you know the Austin Corbett pick to me from a need standpoint not super critical but having now I, I was aware of Corbett I knew he was a Nevada guy I've got a client that was a former Nevada football player so I, I pay a little bit of attention to Nevada football I'm I was aware of him um I Having gone back and watched several of the cutups, I, I didn't know he was as good as I now think maybe he is. Did you get a chance to watch him at all? Um, I honestly didn't. I, I leave the offensive line evaluating mostly to the the O line ex- experts on Twitter. Correctly, yeah, me too. I, I mostly stay in my lane, honestly, at this point. So it's a very big boy decision, but we're going to talk about Austin Corbett anyway. Um, I, oh, th- well, there's a very fun clip. Uh, and it's back from 2015, so it would have been when he was, I suspect, a sophomore because he played the full run, right? He would have been a sophomore, Miles Garrett at Texas A&M, and they go one-on-one pretty much the whole game. And it's – look, if you think at, about Miles Garrett, anything like what I think about Miles Garrett, and this was when Miles was young and whatnot, this guy does a pretty – he holds his own. He's, he's certainly mm-hmm. not dominating Miles, but Miles struggles at times with him – when he gets his hands on him, like when, when Corbett gets into you, you're going to have a problem. He's a big, strong dude. He's got good movement. He seems to be 
um, you know, when you watch an offensive line and you can tell that they are basically deferring to its best player in terms of what responsibility, that's, he was that guy for sure. And um, I got to tell you, watching just a few cutups, I'm getting a little ahead of myself and I'm certainly going to circle back with, as you say, the wisdom of the offensive line folks. And maybe I'll even get, get Murph, my, my buddy Kyle on here to talk specifically about offensive line. Um, but I'm going to be kind of surprised if they aren't hoping, and I put an asterisk or two on that word, hoping he develops into their starting left tackle. Yeah, I agree. That That's definitely the idea right out the gate. I, um, I have a relationship with someone, we'll just say close to the source with the Browns. and A uh, team source. <laughs> yes. That's how that's done in yes. the business. You're not reporting anything, though. We're not reporters on this podcast. No, I'm not a reporter. I just sometimes I'll text someone, they text me back, and then I tweet it, and everybody, you know, gets excited or whatever. But anyway, yeah, Austin Corbett, I think they're going to try him at tackle and see how that goes. So I, I assume he'll compete with Sean Coleman out the gate. I don't expect that they would move Joel Batonio out there. And a I big think that reason would be only that. if they were really feeling desperate about it. Yeah, but this is going to sound crazy to people, but I think that guard is a more valuable position than tackle. That's my take on it, especially when you have short quarterbacks like the Browns do. Um, interior defensive line, you know, interior pressure on the defensive line is Kinda more valuable than edge pressure. depends on the week, pressure. doesn't it? Depends who you're playing. I mean, Boy, if you're playing does, the Rams, it definitely. Always if, if, more. It de- if you're playing the Rams, it oh. matters a lot. If you're playing Denver or the Browns, you better have them tackles. True, but your quarterback can always step up in the pocket if he has a firm pocket. So if, <laughs> well, if those edge guys are getting up the my field, quarterback? <laughs> my quarterback I'm hasn't saying, done that in 15 years, bro. <laughs> well, I'm saying anybody's quarterback. I mean, all I'm saying is a quarterback can mitigate a great edge rush by stepping up in the pocket if he has a firm pocket. But if you don't have a firm pocket to step up into with your guard, your, your guards and your center holding their ground and, yeah. you know, anch- anchoring in and giving him space to step up and throw, then your quarterback's screwed. He's going to have to try to run out of the back of the pocket. And then those edge guys are going to clean up sacks. And that's how it happens a lot of times with these great pass rush units. So I'm of the opinion that I think interior offensive line is, even more valuable than tackles. But I think that if you have a dud anywhere on the offensive line, then you're kind of screwed because defensive coordinators should be smart enough to move their guys around and put their best guy against your worst guy. And so you just said it perfectly. I I think that's the theory behind Corbett, right? It's let's get a bunch of really good and at least a couple position flexible athletic physical offensive linemen to make damn sure that no matter where we end up we feel confident that we can put five guys on the field who can play and and because think about the recent history of the browns there's there's really no arguing that their starting offensive lines over the past decade have been pretty damn good uh, if you know left to right on the whole yeah but in in but two things have doomed them over and over and over again in alternating you know, or sometimes varying ways. Number one, you'll catch a key injury, and you're not deep enough to absorb it. Mm-hmm. Good teams don't have that problem. Good teams are deep enough to absorb it. They aren't necessarily exactly the same, 
but they've got a good enough player to step in, and they've got a good enough workaround from a scheme and personnel standpoint to make it work to keep them in the season. And then number two, like you said, the Browns have occasionally had that dud, a Cameron Irving or an O'Neal Cousins. And like you say, if you've got that dude on your line, I mean, everybody knows who the sucker at the poker table is. We're going to find you, and it's going to be a problem. And so to me, it makes a ton of sense. And you knew Dorsey somewhere in there was going to go get a big dude to draft early in the draft, so that didn't surprise me at all. I, having watched the tape now, I'm actually pretty excited about the pick. I, I don't expect him to, and like I'm saying, I didn't study him in depth, but I, I'll, let, me, let me dial it back to I definitely understand where they think this guy can help this team pretty quickly, and he's, he's a long-term, probably a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that they didn't, like I said before the draft, I'm, gl- I'm glad that they didn't dig into this offensive tackle only group. You know, the guys that are only pegged as offensive tackles because they went with the best route. You just take a versatile, good offensive lineman that should be a solid starter for a while. If I mean, unless you absolutely whiff on him, this guy should project as a solid starting offensive lineman and you either put him inside or outside wherever he fits long term. And then you just build from there. I think that that's the key is just finding five solid dudes for the long term. You don't necessarily need a Joe Thomas. You don't need an all pro. It helps. It's great. But I think with offensive line play, you get to a certain level. And then from there, it's like if your quarterback's any good, you're not going to be able to afford a superstar offensive line. And so you oh, better get a agree. And, and your your quarterback will will mask a lot on the offensive line if he's any good. And yep. so I, I have come a long way on this. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I understand completely what a team like Dallas is doing, especially with a young quarterback protecting behind the frigging Great Wall of China. But they've got an awful lot of resource in their offensive line. And at some point, those chickens are going to come home to roost, and I don't know if it's going to have benefited them in the interim. Whereas I, I – think like you I think the game has evolved to a place and actually you know I'm really glad you put it the way you did because this goes back to a thought that is no longer anywhere near original or you know news breaking but the idea that the game has been progressing more and more to a to a a world of positional versatility and sort of not interchangeability but overlap between what we used to see as say the traditional defensive end and defensive tackle roles or wide receiver and tight end roles or wide receiver and running back roles or whatever. More and more, it's more like basketball where you're getting your best athletes on the field and figuring out ways to create mismatches, right? And I think even on the offensive line, or to not even, to recognize that on the offensive line and to go get skilled guys who can do it as opposed to taking chances. I look at what the Raiders did going to get Colton Miller at 15, Mm. man, that's a, you don't know that, that, let me just put it to you like this. I'm a UCLA guy. I saw every snap that guy played. He has not put it on tape that he's going to be a good player. Mm. Corbett's put that on tape. Corbett's got a couple of years of really good games. And so, uh, you know, he may not be 6'9 and 375 and run a 4'2 or whatever, but (laughs) he's out there blocking people. He's out there handling Miles Garrett with reasonable aplomb. Go watch Miles Garrett against Colton Miller and see how you feel about that. 
That dude, uh, give me Austin Corbett at 33 over Colton Miller at 15 every day of every week of every month of every year of every century of every epoch. Moving on. The running back position. This is, like I said earlier, probably my favorite pick in the draft just because I like touchdowns and Nick Chubb (laughs) can give you touchdowns from any spot on a football field at any moment in the game. And if you don't believe me, all you got to do is pull up the Rose Bowl against one Baker Mayfield's Oklahoma Sooners because my man made play after play. And, and you got to say, frankly, both running backs from Georgia were pretty impressive in that game. Um, and I'd have been happy with either one of them. But personally, I preferred Nick Chubb ever so slightly. Um, I, I'm thrilled to have Nick Chubb. To put Nick Chubb and Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson in the backfield is now three, in my mind, legitimate legitimate NFL running backs, a couple of whom might be a lot better than legitimate. And if you want a side note, go listen to the Tomahawk show from free agency week where they talk about Duke Johnson and Kyle Shanahan. And if you, I mean, start putting up posters week one, friends, do it in training camp, sign Duke Johnson, pay that man, pay that man. But Nick Chubb back to the draft. Wait, I think you should say a little bit more about that. I will. We'll come really back quick. to it. But I want because okay. I want to talk about how all this fits into the bigger picture later, and I yeah. will do that then. But I gotta say, I, I, when I think about my favorite, obviously I'm stoked to get a quarterback at number one that the team's convicted about. But when I think about aside from that, my favorite, I I, I honestly like the three pick stretch, the Ward Corbett Chubb stretch, but. I mean, man, Chubb has me excited. Uh, those of you who listen to our episodes with Matt Waldman, you know that Matt had Chubb as his best running back this year. And what's more, he tweeted the other day, I think right after they picked him, um, and I quote, yes, 4.21 p.m., which is my time, not your time, 4.21 Pacific. Uh, so 21 minutes on to day two. Nick Chubb has the highest grade of any back i studied in sick the past five years so that would include leonard fournette ezekiel elliott certainly saquon barkley todd Gurley, and one todd Gurley. someone i respect an awful lot thinks nick chubb is better than those dudes so especially on running backs that's like waldman's Strong suit. He would he would admit that too. I think. I think that so that's too. That's his best position. I think yeah. so too. And I, you know, over the years, I have tended to see running back kind of like he does, and so I'm not surprised that I do here. But it's not like Matt's the only one saying that Nick Chubb might be a phenomenal running back in the NFL. I mean, Nick Chubb was one of those dudes coming out of high school, going to college. He was the five star recruit. He was the guy that everybody expected to follow in the shoes of Todd Gurley and Georgia's running back tradition is the running back tradition them and SC. And I mean, you could include Texas if you want, but in the last 30 years, sure seems to me like Georgia's got about as many of them as anybody else. And probably more university of Miami. I should have included there for sure, but you see what I'm getting at. Nick Chubb might be, I mean, we could be looking back in my opinion in a year at Nick Chubb as the steal of the draft. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Uh, I'm really excited to see him with 
Duke Johnson, I'm interested to see who kind of carries the load this year because obviously I don't think Hyde and Chubb are both getting a ton of carries at the same time. I, I think it'll be Nick Chubb. I think that he'll come out the gate. He'll prove that he's the best. I mean, maybe they put Hyde in there for pass protection at times, and Duke will do some of that as well. But I think Chubb ends up this season getting the most carries. He's really explosive for a big back. His lateral agility is like rare for a back that size, honestly. The way that he can move and jump cut and just string moves together for a back that big is pretty uncommon. You don't really see that much with running backs that come around. And then he has that home run, home run ability. Um, Alonzo Highsmith, he, he just dropped the mic in the presser. The guy didn't even finish asking him who he'd compare him to. The reporter was like, who Jamal would you compare? Lewis. And he says, Jamal Lewis. And he just looks at the reporters like, like ask yeah, me the next I just question. said Jamal Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we're on yeah. to the next. Yeah, that, was, that guess, was a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the type of runner that they're getting. And it's just really exciting. I mean, I, I hope that they extend Duke because Carlos Hyde's deal. I mean, that, that was a good pickup. I think that was the reason that was a strong pickup because was it's if the there was someone positions, on the board at right? 35 that was higher than Nick Chubb, then they may have gone in a different right. direction. And then if someone was still on the board later on, they might have still passed. So it could have got to a situation where in the fourth round, they're taking a running back. And maybe that's not a guy that you put ahead of Carlos Hyde year one. So you have Hyde and Duke Johnson and then that third guy. And who knows how that works out. But since they got Nick Chubb, now that Hyde deal, which I think was three years, now it turns more into a one-year deal, I believe, with the guarantees and and with the way that they can get rid of him. I think they can just cut him after this year if they want to. And there's not much dead money on the contract. Yeah, I'm, sure they so, can. I'm sure they can. Yeah. And that's how and, all these contracts are. I'm pretty sure. Well, and the reality in the NFL is that that is a rugged position and those guys are going to get hurt and, yep. and a rookie is going to hit a wall. And look, look at the way the saints use their running backs. There is room for plenty of them. Now the Browns have all kinds of guys that you're going to want to get the ball to. But guess what? That's a pretty good problem to have all of a sudden that we have never, ever, ever had. And let's not assume that all of them are going to stay on the field. We can't trust guys like Josh Gordon and Corey Coleman yet. And so to me, um, getting a guy like Nick Chubb and having uh, Carlos Hyde, who you know is an established veteran, if unspectacular back, and having the added dynamic of Duke Johnson in that backfield, you're looking at that whole picture thinking, I can do a lot of things with my running backs at any given moment. And that is a huge, huge advantage. And so for me, I, I look at the way a lot of modern teams are using the running back position in sort of a, a – I, I guess committee is a reasonable word. They're, it's very you know, much a committee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the days of the 25-yard bell cow back, Earl Campbell is not walking through that door. And with good reason. Number one, he can't. And that, and that is why you don't spend top five picks on running backs yeah. because that means that you have to use that guy that way, which is not smart. Right. And to have <laughs> guys fresh both in fourth quarters and come November, um, to me, the Browns haven't had that option in a long time. I mean, Terrence West and Isaiah Crowell were okay. These are all guys that Nick Chubb to me is so far and away better than any of those guys. It's not even worth discussing. Carlos Hyde has already, you know, established himself as a capable 
decent NFL back. And Duke Johnson, to me, I mean, I think you said it, that he ought to get a chance to be the lead back, and I don't really disagree with it, but clearly he's not going to. Um, right. And and maybe his that role should increase, his role should increase, and maybe that's good for all involved, and it'll preserve a super talented guy. Um, but I look at that group, and and I keep thinking about what you were talking about doubling down on the position with a signed veteran free agent and a rookie, and I keep hearing people and seeing people on Twitter who don't necessarily jive with that idea, and I'm just thinking, man. The number of times over the past 15 years when I've thought, boy, I'd sure like to have just a basic, stable veteran at that position where that super talented rookie is so he wouldn't have to do it all his damn self, uh, is infinite. And look, here's my problem. We're going to take a side trip down the Sashi Wars path for a moment. I, I don't think that what John Dorsey is doing philosophically is all that distinct from what Sashi Brown was going to do this year. And so I, I'm looking at this going, look, I'm not going to hold the fact that I don't think Brown should have been fired. And even though I don't feel all that strongly about that point, I don't think he should have been fired. But I'm not going to hold that against John Dorsey, who's, you know, a, a longtime NFL professional. He's had the big job before, comes in, he's experienced, whatever. We'll see how it goes. All things considered, philosophically, I kind of agree with what he's doing so far. So I don't know. We'll see how it all works out. Tell me about Antonio Callaway, who they seem to be super excited about. Yeah, so he's extremely explosive, um, catches everything, hands catcher. He can snatch the ball away from his body. Um, very fluid, uh, has home, very fluid, like in and out of breaks and running routes. Understands how to create separation. He's a home run threat. He has experience as a punt returner where he was just, absolutely dynamic if you watch his highlights on youtube it's crazy the plays he can make as a punt returner just runs by everybody um talent wise it's all there i mean highsmith said that he was the best receiver in the draft dorsey said he was best or second best so that tells you what they thought of him as a talent the off-field stuff is clear sometimes with these guys we can say oh we don't know the off-field we don't know the guy well with this guy everybody kind of <laughs> no, knows it's the guy. all bad so it's far. out in the open yeah, and they went so, they went pretty heavy on the rhetoric in their pressers about well we've done our due diligence and we feel really good about it and oh by the way adam henry's gonna keep him in line good luck with that adam <laughs> you're on the bus buddy yeah that was impressive I mean, they went all in on that it's interesting how Antonio Brown's taking him under his wing. Did you notice that? Did you hear about that? I mean, that that's yeah, a really interesting story, thing yeah, to me. I don't know anything so, about Antonio it. Brown, like, I think he saw, he heard about Callaway somehow. I'm not sure exactly how, but but he thought that he was a similar player to himself. Like, he saw some of himself in him. And I think Antonio Brown's had some, he's never been a problem off the field, but I think he's he has a background of not always being like, I don't know the best person that just from what I've heard before. So I think he took Antonio Callaway under his wing, decided to work out with him this off season. And, uh, I mean, Callaway clearly he failed the drug test at the combine. Yes. But uh, I mean, how, how dumb how do you have to be to fail the drug test at the combine? Is that what you were about to oh, ask? Yes. <laughs> that we all know that that's a very dumb thing. We all know that. That's like what showing I was up to the job is, interview and peeing in the plants. <laughs> I know. I know. 
<laughs> but what I was going to say was, other other than that, are there any of these things that have happened that were within the past six months or whatever? I'm just asking you if you know. <laughs> <laughs> other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the reality is I don't know enough about Callaway's story. I've, I've definitely seen him play. Um, and as I've, look, I've said it on here a number of times, I'm not a real fan of digging into the character issues. What I've read I find troubling and objectionable. Um, and I remain, uh, if we're going to be deep about it, I remain philosophically and intentionally and willfully, though sometimes stupidly hopeful, uh, for the redemption of people. And I shall root for that. Um, you know, if a guy can turn his life around, I choose not to hold the worst things he's done in his life, uh, against him forever. That's just, that's not how I live. So beyond that, I have no comment on the character stuff cause I really don't know anything about it. And, and it's clear that they have to at least worry about it. And otherwise this guy would have gone way higher. Um, and so they'll have to keep him on the straight and narrow. And as we know, the Browns have an outstanding record of doing that with their real, uh, rather dynamic wide receivers. Um, yeah. I mean, as far as with Dorsey, I think we should talk a little bit more yeah. about this. I mean, uh, he clearly right. has the you, past with Tyree Hill. Yep. Do it. He's been around it. He's seen it firsthand, how it can work taking a guy that, made some pretty awful, terrible mistakes that are not okay. And in a lot of professions, the guy doesn't get a chance. You know, that guy doesn't get a second chance in a lot of professions, but because they're great at football, they get that second chance. And that's the reality of this. So Callaway now gets that second chance and we'll see what he makes of it. But as far as football, or which 12th is what I feel is the case may be right. And which the sliding the scale stuff is the more talent, more the more chances. I feel comfortable talking about right, and I and, feel much more talk, comfortable talking about his role with the Browns. So well, I, you, I know you saw him. You've watched because you, when we were talking before, I'll just say your description of him a moment ago was reserved compared to what you said before we started recording. The word monster came out of your mouth. Expl- oh yeah, explain yourself, sir. Yeah, he's just an extremely explosive threat. I mean, he can score from anywhere on the field as a wide receiver. It's, I mean, he's not the big, huge, physical, freaky guy like Josh Gordon, but he's a dynamic talent. I mean, he's, you know, if he was in Corey Coleman's class, who goes higher? Like, who knows who goes higher in that class, you know, cause in 2016. So we're talking about a really big-time, talented wide receiver here. It's not, it's not just... uh it's not Dante Pettis. You know, we both like Dante Pettis, but that's not, he's not like a dynamic freak athlete. That's probably going to be like, we shouldn't say probably, but has a chance to be a top five or top 10 wide receiver talent in the whole league. I mean, I think Callaway has that kind of talent where it could be like, Holy shit, this dude's taking games over. Wow. You know, Josh Gordon type shit. So that's, that's what I'm getting at with the talent here. That's I like why that they kind of talent. On. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I like touchdowns so, for sure. Exactly. So if he gets his head on straight enough, that that's the thing. His head doesn't have to be completely on straight. It just has to be on straight enough that he's not getting suspended, enough that he's not getting arrested. That's all that we need. If it's to that point, I think he's definitely 
talented enough to push Corey Coleman. I mean, he, he could surpass Corey Coleman when it comes to snaps. If he's on the field, that's how talented he is. And, and I am one of the few that still thinks Corey Coleman can play. I think I mean, most of his targets the past two years were they've shitty. They've got a I ton mean, of speed on the field and a ton of freaky athletes on the field. I mean, if you think about a world where they could put Gordon and Callaway and Coleman, and you, I mean, Landry's a total ordinary dude out there compared to those guys. And, I mean, man, Duke Johnson maybe? That's a fun yeah. group. That's a I fun know. group. And, you can score it, a lot of points with that group. Yeah. And it protects you from the injury thing. I mean, that's the key with all this. They never have depth in the past. I mean, they were walking out. It was fucking Richard Higgins and Ricardo Lewis and Cason Williams were their starting receivers some weeks. I mean, I know like that, the week after they signed a couple of those guys. <laughs> yeah. Like that's just really bad. So like that doesn't give you a chance at all. I mean, it got to the point where they honestly should have just played like Duke and Najoku and DeValve at receiver and they would have been better off. So having all this depth where it's, I mean, this is the group right now. It's Corey Coleman, Antonio Callaway, Jeff Janis, Jarvis Landry, Richard Higgins, Josh Gordon, Ricardo Lewis, and Damian Rowley. I mean, that is... You know, some of those guys clearly we're not counting on to be players, but but some of them we know have talent and should be able to play. I mean, Josh Gordon, Corey Coleman, Antonio Callaway, and Jarvis Landry, just off the top, that's four guys. That, that should be a legitimate Cor- NFL wide receiver core. Exactly. If, if Corey Coleman stops breaking his hand and the receiver doesn't throw it at his feet every play, except for that one... You know, really bad drop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. Whatever. I'm over yeah. that drop. But I anyway. was over that drop the minute it happened, to be honest with you. So Yeah. But anyway, it's talented. It's a talented, deep group if Callaway comes along. Well, and you mentioned Ratley. Um, how much, if any, yeah. did you see of him? I saw I saw a little bit because UCLA played AM twice yeah, I've seen the some past of two them. years. Um I my very sort of you know, bird's eye view impression, awfully fast and Mm -hmm. tracks the ball pretty well and has that kind of, um, I don't, I I don't get the impression he's super jukey quick. Um, he's more of a smooth speedster Mm -hmm. pretty and pretty decent hands. I thought, yeah, I would say that he's like a glider after the catch. Like he can he can change direction and glide, but he's not gonna like break someone off with a juke or you know a quick, um, yeah, not quick change of direction. But yeah, Ratley and, and like you I, said earlier, I think he, who knows if he even makes the team? But go ahead. Yeah, that's the thing with the sixth round picks. I mean, I'm really thinking of him and Thomas as guys that you hope make the practice squad if they really come along big time then that means that they'll probably be contributing on Sundays. But as of now, we can't expect that of these six round picks. So realistically, they're probably on the practice squad to start the year. Ratley seems like a deep threat type. Uh, He's fast, gets down the field, tracks the football. Um, He's, I think he averaged 23 yards a catch. Again, I'm bad with stats. Everybody that's listened to this more than five times knows that. So um. Yeah, but I believe he averaged around twenty-three or even yards. Or if they catch. just caught the right single episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. 
But no, twenty three yards of catch. That's I mean, he's going deep. That's the that's the yeah. bottom line there. Yep. Not a ton of catches, but when he caught them, they were long, they were far down the field. So well, and both Haley and uh, Hugh like the idea of stretching the defense to all degrees, right? Um, they like mm-hmm. to shift things, and they like to they like to clear people out with deep routes. And frankly, the thing that you can't n- fail to notice about both of those guys, I'm just going to do this purely anecdotally because I've watched everybody in the league, and it sure feels like it to me. They seem to call an awful lot of all-go relative to the league. And Mm -hmm. if you've got four dudes who are way too fast, one of those dudes is going to shake free pretty frequently. So I look forward to seeing the third and seven or the fourth and or or even the first and ten all go. I'm I tend to be a fan of the first and ten all go, um, and then just figure it out from there. Um, but if you've got every if everybody can run, that's usually a good thing, right? I mean, the best teams yeah. we've seen over the years, to me, usually have a speed advantage, um, and and you would think it would be more obvious. Uh, even the teams that are big and beating up on people are fast at key positions where it matters most, like corner and middle backer and edge rusher and wide receiver. And so I I do feel like they've paid good attention to that maxim. And so again, I go back to I, I kinda like yeah. I kinda like it. Yeah, my view on wide receiver is you just want to have a bunch of different types, which I think they have right now. I mean, yeah. Josh Gordon, he can he can be a deep threat, but he can be a threat from anywhere on the field. Jarvis Landry is going to work mostly in the middle of the field. I mean, depending on how Haley uses him, but based on what we've seen in Miami, he's going to primarily work in the middle of the field. He's the reliable everything. guy, right? He's, he's, he's Mr. Reliable. That's yeah. his job. His job is to not Absolutely. drop the ball and to hopefully, well, maybe not, because he was so efficient in the red zone. Do you think he's going to have that kind of a role in Cleveland given their other red zone options? Because in Miami – it wasn't quite so thick with guys that you expect to be able to make plays. I think so if they try, because my view on on uh, wide receivers in the red zone is also a little unconventional. I think that the best wide receivers in the red zone create separation above all, and they're not just guys that out jump people or whatever. You know, that's so we you all love think of these Julian Edelman, for example. Oh yeah. Yeah, any guy that just creates separation consistently in the red zone that's going to give your quarterback a window where he's wide-ass open against man coverage, which is what people play in the red zone. I mean, that is, that is much more ideal for a quarterback to look at and throw the ball to than someone who looks covered and you have to throw him open. And if you've got the right quarterback and they've got enough chemistry, that window yeah. doesn't need to be all that big or very long, right? Oh, yeah, of course. And trust is so much of it, too. I mean, if you can anticipate that that guy is going to win outside or inside, and I think we'll probably see that with Tyrod and Jarvis. I mean, because they, they're they already throwing together. They seem like guys that are going to just work their asses off. So, yeah, Jarvis Landry is a guy that he can just create separation. He knows how to run routes. So that's something – that's a guy you want to go to on third down. I can't say that Josh Gordon is a great route runner. I can't say that any of their guys are great route runners aside from Jarvis Landry. Josh Gordon has flashes of great routes, but that's because of his athletic ability. It's because nobody's going to try and press him. You can't press Josh Gordon. It's the (laughs) dumbest thing in the world unless you've got two dudes behind you. So he's, I mean, I don't think Josh Gordon is like a reasonable 
discussion point for regular wide receiver play because he can just yeah, do things sure. that nobody else gets to do. Yeah, I mean, Martavis Bryant was kind of like that in their offense too. I mean, I know that they're not the same player, but they're similar when Certainly it comes very to threatening the role. In similar ways, yeah. Yep. And then as far as Coleman and Callaway, that's two guys that can kind of win at every level. But I think first and foremost, you're going to want to get the ball in their hands and see what they do with it after the catch because they're just both so dynamic. So you kind of you can isolate them one-on-one maybe as the X receiver at times and have them work route combinations with Jarvis Landry and I got an idea get the ball in their hands and make someone miss does this this is purely me on a whiteboard right now but does it make some sense because I feel like I've seen route combos before where you've got two guys on either side one the inside guy and and I mean split out the inside guy runs a a seam or a, a deep ball a nine route of some kind the outside guy runs one of those little quick slants or quick some kind of a smoke route, whatever, some kind of quick passing game route. Like a hitch? Yeah, whatever. And, I mean, you've cleared out some defenders no matter what. They have to respect the pass rushers. So those guys, I mean, just from a purely numbers standpoint, I feel like if you put Gordon and Coleman on one side and you put, like, Najoku and, um, I don't know, Callaway on the other, or Duke, with Duke mm-hmm. in the backfield, whatever. I, it sure sounds to me like, I mean, there are going to be a lot of really simple concepts you can create just because people have to respect the playmaking ability of your people in all those positions, right? Yeah, definitely. And and it's key being able to motion them around and the tells that that gives to the quarterback as well. For example, just to put this quickly, if you motion a running back out of the backfield, put him outside, if the corner stays out there, you know that that's zone coverage because a corner would not guard a running back man-to-man. No defense is wasting their cornerback against a running back in man-to-man coverage. So, so the quarterback and all the receivers immediately know that's, that's zone coverage if it's a corner against a running back outside. Whereas if you motion the running back outside, so Duke leaves the backfield, he runs out, out wide outside of Josh Gordon. And a linebacker runs out there with him and the corner stays over top of Josh Gordon. That's clearly man-to-man coverage because they've got a linebacker over the running back. They've got a corner over the wide receiver. So now the quarterback knows, okay, this is man-to-man. We need to call a man-beater. Yeah, it's just process so, of elimination really, right? It's Yeah, exactly. Here's, so those, what, here's those, what I know, here's what I don't know. And, and based on those two things, here's where the ball ought to go, right? Yep. Oh yeah, definitely. It helps the quarterback's process. I mean, you see like Shanahan, Belichick, McVay, they do so much motion. Oklahoma. I mean, Oklahoma's offense did a ton of motion, which helps the quarterback a ton with reading the defense, figuring out where to go with the ball, eliminating options. I mean, it can get you to your third, third read because you've already just eliminated two of them pre-snap. So you know that your third read should be the primary just based on the pre-snap look at times. Yeah, and and to me that's what you're describing is the pre-snap mental game, which I personally delineate at Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is where that became not an outlying thing, but a prerequisite to playing even remotely mediocre NFL quarterback. You had to be able to do that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. 
Peyton Manning is where that changed. So when I hear Phil Sims talk about quarterback, I wonder whether he's really getting all, you know, it's like it's a different game. And I know he, he I don't, I'm not saying I know more than Phil Sims, but you know what I'm getting at. You hear things and you're like, well, but there are all these other things that the quarterback is responsible for now. And it seems to me that what you're talking about with um, some of the things that Shanahan and McVay and these guys are doing, but particularly Oklahoma, and we know that the NFL if we're reading our, our articles right, the NFL is cycling through Norman, Oklahoma to learn from Lincoln Riley like crazy right now. And mm-hmm. what I think you're describing is a world where offensive coaches are attempting to take what Peyton Manning brought to the quarterback position and sort of diffuse the responsibility for all of that shit that one man was dealing with and build it into a scheme so that the scheme itself determines all this stuff for the quarterback and for the other people. And so there doesn't have to be quite as much on the same page because everyone knows what's what based on the scheme and on the movement and such. And I, to me, that stuff, that, that makes so much just, even though I don't really know what I'm talking about, just the concept from a vague perspective makes so much sense to me in terms of how you want to build a team in the modern NFL when you don't get as much practice time and you don't get guys that are as completely trained for the game you're trying to play coming out of the out of the college game. And it seems to me that if you're going to go draft guys that are playing that way, your Baker Mayfields and whatnot, you ought to try and coach it that way. And that, to me, is going to be the story of this year for the Browns offense is how much can we see them really and and to his credit in my view Hugh actually has always been willing to adopt you know modern and college concepts and whatever um i i will be interested to see whether i i i expect the offense to be geared towards winning and therefore it'll be geared towards Tyrod Taylor at first but you know with respect to how they're using the other guys and and sort of the way the scheme puts everybody else into position to make plays that's for me from a long-term team building standpoint, that's what I'll be looking at offensively this year. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see just how traditional old school NFL Haley's offense looks versus maybe taking some of these college concepts, so to speak after this off season, taking what maybe he studied on film of these college guys, or maybe looking at Andy Reid or the Eagles. Now that the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and taking some of that stuff and adding it into his offense. I mean, he already did some of it with the RPOs and different quick game concepts and just different things that Haley's done in the past, but it'll be interesting to see how spread like or college like the Browns offense looks with all these weapons. Cause yeah, they do have a lot of versatile um, a lot of versatile skill players that can definitely be used in a lot of different ways. And a traditional old school NFL mentality is, is not the best way to employ them. Sorry about that. My mute wasn't coming off properly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I want to go to that, the defense. Yeah, let's go to the defense. That was the next thought but i had i had sort of a segue there that has now floated off into the world so we'll uh denzel ward you know this to me i don't even know that this was so much philosophical because i don't believe that dorsey values corner any more than he values pass rusher uh i believe this was pretty 
this was two things. Number one, this was still need. I mean, need's a big deal here. Corner, and the reason corner, and I'll try and articulate the way I see it, and it's informed by what they've said in their post-draft you know, draft press conferences and whatnot, but if you look at what Greg Williams has always done, his most successful defenses have really good corners. Those corners he had in L.A. when they were a pretty solid defense were good. Um, uh, now I'm blanking on names, but Janoris Jenkins. Janoris Jenkins. Janoris was really dangerous out there, right? And they're all press man corners. You've got to be able to handle yourself on an island. You've got to have a short memory. It's very old school Oakland Raiders to me as a 43-year-old dude. That's who I think of. When I think of like the really nasty press man, I'm going to put my hands all over you and I'm going to pick the ball off corners, I think of Lester Hayes and I think of Mike Haynes, probably two guys you've never fucking heard of. But they were, in my view, the cornerback pair when I was growing up. Now, there were some others, certainly Minifield and Dixon among them. But that, that press man corner style is not something that is super prevalent on the college level these days. And so to find a guy who is a supreme athlete and has excelled at press man coverage and put him into this particular defense with, you know, a defensive line where I think they have some valid reason to believe that they, they, have, they do have some pass rush. And if they could cover a little better, look, I think we can all agree that pass rush helps coverage, coverage helps pass rush. Right now at this moment for this defense, I totally understand. I don't even know whether I'd have done it or not. I don't honestly care. I totally understand where you go. This is a, a genuinely top-shelf cover corner. There aren't a lot of them in the NFL if I think this is one of those guys, I got no problem with it. And I think that's what they think about Denzel Ward. And I know they're not alone. I know a lot of people who thought Denzel Ward was obviously the best corner in the draft. He's clearly the best man corner in the draft. And then you look at the athletic testing and stuff, and you consider the fact that he played behind a couple of guys or with a couple of I mean, that Ohio State backfield – you look at the dudes coming out of there, the record's pretty good. And I'm not one to school scout, but uh, I'm not going to not notice. Tell me about Denzel. He's your guy. Yeah, so I've always been a big fan of Denzel Ward. I, I saw him in high school in Nordonia a few years ago. Uh, I remember when he was redshirting his first year, Urban Meyer said he was the fastest guy on the whole team. Think about that. This kid is a true freshman in college redshirting, and he says he's the fastest guy on the team. We don't even get to see him on the field at that point. So um, the year before this past year, he was rotating with Marshawn Lattimore, who won Defensive Rookie of the Year. So there were times where Lattimore would come off the field and Ward would be playing instead of him. Um, just the thing with Ohio State's defense is it translates so well to the NFL as far as defensive back plays because they play primarily press man-to-man coverage, whether they're in quarters or if they're in cover one, man, straight man-to-man with a free safety over the top. They're playing man-to-man coverage with their corners. They're getting up in the wide receiver's faces, and that's how it is all game long. And it's been like that for the past few years, ever since they, I think they brought in Chris Ash about four years ago as their defensive coordinator. Now he's the, he's the head coach at Rutgers now. And, uh, and Denzel Ward, I mean, he's just, his feet are exceptional. His footwork, 
fluid hips as fast as you'll find. I mean, four, three, you know, that's as fast as you want a guy to be. He's got recovery speed. If a guy gets behind him, he can get back on top of him. Great ball skills when he, the, the thing with the ball skills that some people have brought up as an issue is that at Ohio state, they're coaching these guys to play the receiver instead of the ball. So he's not always looking up for the ball. He's reading the receiver's hands. He's reading his eyes. It's when super is the evident receiver... when you watch him. Like when they have him oh, on yeah. isolated tape, it's super evident that that's, I mean, that's how they are taught to play. And yeah. to their credit, they're not completing balls on Denzel Ward. And right. ultimately, that's a bigger deal. Yep. But when he looked to find the ball in the air, the reason I say he has great ball skills is he was able to get his hands on the ball. He was able to make plays on the ball. For sure. Um, just all around a great man-to-man cover corner and in coverages that Greg Williams calls where he'll be off. He also shows the ability to get in the back pedal and break on the football very quickly after reading the route concept. And he's an extremely physical guy for being only, I think, 184 or whatever Ooh, it was at the combine. against Maryland, dog. Yep. That hit against Maryland was some stuff. And to get into. He got ejected for that. Did you know that? That was, was that targeting? a targeting ejection? Well, it's a ridiculous oh, ejection. It's complete BS. It was yeah. just a big hit. No, it was yeah. a great hit. And uh, yeah, I mean, Physical you can see guy. it in slow motion. You know how hard that is. But, uh, and the targeting rule is poorly enforced. So <laughs> we'll make that stand right now. No, I thought it was a very great and extremely clean hit. And I have no stake in that game. Um, uh, yeah, I'm excited about Denzel Ward, man. You put him – there are a lot of ways we've talked about it offline. You, you have mentioned, and I think this is probably the astute way to look at it, certainly as a rookie, certainly in a division with Antonio Brown and A.J. Green um, and now even Michael Crabtree, who's he's going to put on some work against a rookie corner now. Um, the way I look at it is the, what you told me is you can you can man him up against what would be the number two wide receiver for any of those teams – and then double the number one wide receiver, and you've now put yourself in a position where you've allocated three dudes to deal with both wide receivers, and everything else is kind of flexible and free. Um, and and in some cases, that that safety would be freer than others. Obviously, against um, at least in my mind, at least against Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, you better have some attention on those two boys. But uh, but ultimately. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So tell me, as you sort of, I've looked at your two deep here. You've got, you've got the, you should, if you haven't posted on Twitter, you should, or do a do a roster article at some point here in the near future, and and walk through how you've got these guys out. But talk to me about sort of philosophically, if you've got Ward out there on a number two, paint a picture of what that looks like using one of our division foes, just so somebody gets an idea of what we're talking about. Okay, so, for example, if you're going against Pittsburgh, you say Denzel Ward, even though he primarily played left corner at Ohio State, let's say that this year they task him with shadowing the number two receiver. Instead of putting him against Antonio Brown, who's probably going to beat him more often than not because it's Antonio Brown and he's a great receiver and he's going to beat any rookie, instead of putting him on him where he's going to have trouble, you put him against the number two guy. So that's Juju Smith-Schuster. So... Great player, yes, but still, it's a guy coming into his second year. It's much, it's much more of a fair matchup. So if you're really gonna, if you're gonna uh, commit yourself to this ma- press man, man to man defense, then 
it's best to have a designated guy that he's going to follow. So Denzel Ward, you put him against Juju Smith-Schuster and just let them kind of go to battle. And you can just play man-to-man with, with him as long as Juju is outside. If he goes to the slide, that changes this conversation up a little bit. But let's just say he's outside most of the time. So he's playing man-to-man against him. On the other side of the field with Antonio Brown, what you can do is, let's say, EJ Gaines is outside. So he he uh, if you're playing cover three, he would stay over the top. But then you have help from the nickel. So let's say that's TJ Carey in this in this instance. He would cover the flat. So he's getting underneath Antonio Brown's route to help. So that's double coverage. If it's cover two, you have EJ Gaines underneath beating up Antonio Brown at the snap and then a safety getting over the top to help. So this is. You've always got someone over over top of him, underneath him. If you're playing man-to-man with EJ Gaines against Antonio Brown, you're bringing your free safety, Demarius Randall, who's typically in the middle of the field. You're you're bringing him all the way over. And if maybe you're not at six to points. The hash, <laughs> yeah, to the hash or outside the hash. So the whole game, basically, you're – you're moving around your defensive backs. You're, you're giving help with a linebacker. You're, if he's in the slot, you're getting hands on him. You're beating him up. You're, you're just doing things. And they should be doing this with any receivers, really. And all of but this what I'm is really is to create a- obstruction, right? It's you're obstructing a couple of things. Timing, the wide receiver's path, and throwing lanes. That's it. This is all we're just getting in the way. Because these are all people that are that know where they're going. We're reacting to it. And so the best we can do is have really good athletes who can get in the way for a bit. Yeah, I mean, really, you're trying to disrupt the timing of the offense long enough that Miles Garrett, Chris Smith, Larry Ogunjobi, Emmanuel Ogba, Chad Thomas, Carl Nassib, long enough that those guys can get home and hit the quarterback. That's what you're trying to do. Like the Eagles did over and over and over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. That's Jacksonville. Well, Saxon. you seem you seem reasonably up on the Chad Thomas idea. I don't know if that comes from just being excited that they addressed the position uh, with a with sort of a key pick there, or that you've actually watched enough Chad Thomas to feel good about it. Which one is it? <laughs> it's. I understand the type of player that he is from watching some of them, and. I know the role that he's supposed to play for them. And I think that his skill set fits that mold. Um, Just to get into what he's going to bring to the table a little bit. So they, if you really paid attention closely last year, they like to, to rotate their defensive line. So there, there would be entire drives where they meaning the Browns. Yeah. Yeah. The Browns. Yep. So Garrett and Ogba come off the field and all of a sudden you have Nate Orchard at one end and you have Carl Nassib at the other end and the opposing offense is running down the field every play. It's 10 yards here, five yards here. They throw a pass, touchdown. And it's like... And suddenly they're like, oh, those guys are in. Let's go no huddle. Right, exactly. So so the key is you're adding... So they added Chris Smith and you added Chad Thomas. So Chad Thomas... On rundowns, he's going to play outside. So that that helps that, what we were just talking about, with giving up those chunk runs on early downs, on the rundowns. He can play left defensive end, and he can hold at the point of attack. He can set the edge. 
And that's what they're going to ask him to do. That was the one thing I noticed about him in watching a couple of cutups was he's clearly really strong, right? He's a big, strong dude. Yep. He's stout at the point of attack. He can hold his own. And I think he'll, he will do those duties very well. So it won't be like so much of a drop off. If Ogba has to come out of the game to get a breather, Chad Thomas can go in at left end and he can do the same shit that Ogba does. Just hold at the point of attack, set the edge and let's get to the next down. So on pass downs, um, I think, I think the problem with people looking at Thomas so far is they're projecting him as an edge rusher. Their plan for him is not to be an edge rusher. They plan to use him kind of like Michael Bennett's been used in the NFL on rundowns. He plays outside. He plays on the edge. He sets the edge on pass downs. You move him inside over a guard or a center. You just pick your and favorite you let him spot rush. for him. Yeah. You, you, exactly. pick him you let him rush inside. Tell him to go yep. get it. And he's got, yep, exactly. And, and he's shown the ability to, to create pressure from inside. He's not an edge rusher. He's an interior rusher, and that's the way that they're going to use him in sub packages. It'll be interesting to see how quickly he comes along in that role and how com- how quickly they're comfortable using him in that role because I know that Chris Smith will have a role yeah. on pass down playing inside as an interior rusher because that's what he's best at too. But, but I really look forward to if Chad Thomas can come along as an interior rusher and really become a disruptive presence inside on pass downs, I would – I look forward to a point where they could play Miles Garrett, Chris Smith, Chad Thomas, and Emmanuel Logba all at the same time and and blitz much less than last year, hopefully, if they get into those third and seven situations. Well, so it sounds like based on, you know, early coming into the draft, we talked a lot about your your view on interior disruption on and especially on the, you know, especially obviously on the defensive line, uh, you know, from defensive tackles, nose tackles, whatever. Um, sounds like you think at least on pass downs, Thomas might be able to create that. Does he create it through, um, you know, how each, when we're talking about pass rush, there are different kinds of guys. Does he kind of just blow by guys? Does he brute force his way through? Does he have, uh, like, does he have a bunch of pass rush moves that actually show some, understanding of technique and craft what what are we what kind of guy are we talking about it wasn't the moves so much it was just more i think some guys have a knack it's it's kind of you have it or you don't with him i saw he could cross the guard's face and quickly get into the gap get up the field and create pressure in the backfield i think you know some people say that quarterbacks have an it factor and people don't like that word well i think that Pass rushers sometimes just have a knack for getting in the backfield and creating pressure. And when I in the snaps you that I saw, you can get me with all that touchy feely shit. I believe in yeah. all of it. Yeah, so I think he has a knack for getting up the field, using a quick move to get inside or or to beat the the guard across his face to get into the gap, penetrate in the backfield. He has long arms, or if he doesn't have long arms, he looks like he has long arms on film, which is all that really matters to me. If a guy looks like he has long arms, then he clearly uses his arms well enough to beat the guy, to disregard the blocker, and to get to the quarterback. So that that's what I saw from him. He would just quick use a quick move, get in the backfield, and then create pressure. So hopefully he comes along in that capacity sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to, 
you know, it's easy to get in post-draft and start getting excited about the talent and upside of these guys. And, of course, as the history teaches us, maybe half of them will make it. But yep. But the reality is all of these guys have talent sufficient to be good NFL players. And so the question is whether they can then make it happen. And so, Or at least the physical ability and whatnot. They got here. And some of them got here in a way that leads you to believe that, that – People know what they're doing and think they have a chance to be real good. So it'll be curious with a guy like Thomas because ultimately when you look at allocation of resources, number 67 overall, I mean, that's a pretty high pick. That's only two picks behind the pick they gave up for Tyrod Taylor for what that's worth. So, I, I mean, I suppose it's apples and oranges. You're telling me that four years of Chad Thomas is as good as a year or two of Tyrod Taylor but you see what I'm getting at that's a premium pick and and frankly there were a lot of guys on the board at that point that's probably the pick where both that one and the Callaway pick because I don't know what to make of the Callaway pick honestly but the Thomas pick is the one where I really was like man there are a lot of guys on the board I'd sure like to have right now and this guy better turn out to be a pretty good player that was the way I felt on the pick so you know how that goes it's Draft day reaction bullshit, but that was the feeling. Um, Jannard Avery, on the other hand, I felt like, man, that guy's a pretty good player to be there at 150. Have you had a chance to watch the linebacker from Memphis yet? Yeah, I have. He's um, he's an instinctive player. I think he shows some explosiveness. When they put him on the edge, I was really impressed with his ability to just use different pass rush moves, beat offensive tackles, bend the edge, get to the quarterback. I'm not sure from what I've kind of from what I've heard. I'm not sure if that's going to be his role necessarily, especially off the bat, unless he just really shows a knack for rushing the passer in camp, all that stuff. I I expect him to be the Mike the backup line Mike linebacker, I guess third string off the bat behind Schobert and Tank Carter. Um, but I think you know he's he's going to come in. He seems to be a guy that works hard at his craft. I've, I've heard people say, I haven't experienced this firsthand, but I've heard people say that he really improved big time from his junior year to his senior year, especially when it came to the pass rushing and the, and the sack numbers and all that kind of stuff. So he seems to be a guy that works at it. I expect him to play, you know, he'll be on every special teams unit and is he the guy that he beats costs, out Tank Carter? Because I was going to say, is he the guy that costs Tank Carter a yeah. job, or is he the guy that costs uh, Nate Orchard a job? <laughs> oh, def. I mean, I don't. Nate Orchard's gone. I know. Yeah, I'm not sure if either guy make the team, but if he's costing someone a job, I would say it'd be Carl Nassib Carter. Would make the team. That's a tough one, because I mean Man, they're not going to cut else. Chad Thomas. No, obviously they're not going to. Yeah, so. I mean, he could stay on as the fifth end, but but the thing is, there's going to be injuries that happen between now and then. I mean, there are oh, there yeah, always are in training camp, there always are in preseason. Well, that's why you got to keep taking players at every position, and there's no such thing as you're good enough at any position ever. That's exactly that's just the reality of it. Yep, um, that's why you take good players instead of just focusing on immediate needs. Yeah, like the left tackle thing, for example. Well, and and to that end, Jannard Avery is a guy who probably in a pinch could fill in at any of the linebacker spots. He's not like, you don't want to have him in a position where he's constantly having to go sideline to sideline. Like he's Jonathan Vilma. But aside from that, 
he's a guy that will understand responsibility. He will tackle. He will take on blocks. And he understands. I, I don't want him in coverage against Antonio Gates, you know, circa 2005. But he understands what he's trying to accomplish when he's put into almost any role. And I feel like, you know, if you're getting a smart, tough, physical football player, you're always going to be able to do worse than that. You know, that that's a guy you can you can trust to be part of your 53. Yeah, definitely. And and it's just it's important because we saw Jamie Collins go down last year. James Burgess yeah. stepped up. He he was And I you can improve top, on James Burgess as yeah, as much the, as he did step up. Yeah, he was in the top 30 I think in the entire NFL and TFLs. I like him as the backup Sam. I mean, I, I view him as he he has a role on this team without a doubt, but Jannard Avery stepping in, potentially being the backup Mike linebacker. I'm competition completely everywhere, okay baby. With that. Let's do it. Competition yeah. everywhere. I want guys scared for their jobs. You're owing uh, you're owing two seasons. You all need yeah. to be scared for your jobs. Everybody. Right. Joe Thomas retired. Ain't nobody in that building gets to be unscared for their job. And lastly, but not and least. Especially not the head coach. Yeah. <laughs> Young Leister with some spunkiness. I like it. The uh, the last but not least, the Browns, Mister Irrelevant, Simeon. Oh crap! I'm going to forget his name. Simeon Thomas, right? Yep. Simeon Thomas out of uh, the defensive back out of Louisiana. As I said earlier, Lafayette, Southwest Louisiana State, the Raging Cajuns. Emory Hunt had a report for us. I trust you kept that pulled up on your screen. I am finding it right now. Mm, this is a very Spaceballs moment. I tried to give you a lot of runway to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Simeon Thomas is a tall corner, if I recall yep. correctly. I want to say he's like six three and a half, which doesn't exactly sound like corner. But he's also like 112 pounds, if I remember correctly. He's really super light. <laughs> and And so I know there was some thought that he might eke out there into a free safety position, but it sounds like, I mean, just looking at the, you put that too deep together and I got to agree. I mean, it doesn't seem like the spot for him and maybe in a pinch, it might have to be someday, but ultimately I think it makes more sense to have the, obviously they're going to have Randall there as a starter and you've got body Calhoun there as sort of the backup. Um, and I, I think they're going to use body Calhoun as sort of their Jack of all trade. They're going to, they're going to get him on the field pretty much all the time it's just they're not sure exactly where all the time does that make sense to me to you yeah i think so i mean i'm not 100 percent sure how how much greg williams loves him but i i hope that that's the goal for him <laughs> yeah i think he's a great like i think he's a very good young player who's yeah. shown much more positive things than most guys on the team and and so with that in mind viewing thomas as a, a corner and bearing in mind what you said earlier about I don't think it's all that reasonable expect this guy to make the team but let's let's look at why he might um I don't know if you've gotten to see him at all do you have did you manage to find Emery's scouting report now that I've <laughs> have I riffed long enough real good it's on yeah. you <laughs> yeah so Emery Emery went to Louisiana Lafayette so he's Let's not call him biased here. So he uh, he said that Simeon Thomas he's extra is familiar. Foot, yes, he's he's a six foot three, hundred ninety five pound corner with length and athleticism to hold his own on the field and boundary side. 
I asked him if he thinks he'll be a corner. He said, I think so. Dude can press well and can run with the best of them. Um, and then later on, I texted someone I know w- with the Browns, and they said he'll be a corner. So there you go. He's not going to be a safety. He will be a corner, especially starting out. Um, I know that he's another guy that has some off-field stuff. I don't remember the exact mm. issues that there were, but this well, is just again, another in that rounder. trend. I'm not going to. I'm yeah. not going to investigate the sixth rounders. Make the team first, Bubba. Make the team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I worry think. About you. Yeah, and I think with this guy, it's just realistic to expect practice squad in year one, unless he shows some really special stuff out of nowhere in the well, preseason. You rattled off those names earlier in the cornerback position. There, it's mm-hmm. not a. It is no longer a. Look, it's not a super intimidating group, but it is no longer a thin group. Run that list of names off, starting with Ward, obviously, at the top. I mean, to me, Ward is cornerback one, even if he's not manning up against wide receiver one every week, right? Ward's your best corner from there on down. Yeah, so Denzel Ward, Terrence Mitchell, Simeon Thomas, EJ Gaines, Jamar Taylor, Howard Wilson, TJ Carey, Brianne Body Calhoun. Well, I'm not sure that's in order, but that's okay. <laughs> it's oh, certainly bad. the group. Um, it's certainly the group. And you look at, I think the idea is to have Carey in the slot. We'll see whether Jamar Taylor remains on the roster. I kind of expect that maybe he won't in the long term, but we'll see. You know, as those injuries pile up, you know, Stuff changes. Never know how they're going to have to react to things. That's the Browns draft. I want to tiptoe briefly and just kind of get your reaction. Do you share my view that the oh shit moment of the 2018 draft was Lamar Jackson at 32 to the Baltimore Ravens? Yes, I 100% feel that way. Lamar Jackson was, um, I had him above Baker Mayfield in my quarterback rankings. I had him third. I had Mayfield fourth. We'll see how that works out long term. I think they both have. The Again, we must starters. remind the pitchforks and torches that you still thought Mayfield was a solid starter in the NFL. Exactly. And, and there were other people that agree with your view on who's better than whom. And and honestly, I'm fortunately. See, I'm I'm nice and waffly. I said the whole time there are four guys that I think are good enough that I think they warrant consideration at one. And here's the reality. I've been liberated because I can't study them enough to really know who, I, and to have really f- strong feelings about it. You know what I mean? And I could have, I definitely understood the cases for each of those four guys. And so Mayfield, sure, fine, let's go, let's do it. Jackson, absolutely. I would have been thrilled. Jackson in Baltimore, God damn it. Yep. It's scary. I think the the thing is they have, um, Na- names escaping me, but they have the OC, the coached Michael Vick Marty in Philadelphia. Yep, yep. And then they have an also, Andy Reid guy. Yeah, a Mike Holmgren guy, have, um, Steve Mariucci guy. All those dudes. They have the guy that John coached uh, Kaepernick in San Francisco. Uh, uh, Greg Roman. He used to be the offense. Yep, Greg Roman. Yep. So that's yeah, two guys that out. around mobile quarter- quarterbacks. And I think Lamar Jackson's a more advanced passer than Vic was ever before the no, point that, where I don't he even played think for Andy Reid. I don't even think that's subjective. I think that's a fact. I, I think he's, as a passer, I think Vic is, Vic coming out of college didn't have any real idea what he was doing as a passer. He was exceptionally right. talented throwing the football. He didn't really understand how to pass. 
Mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson is a passer first. Right. His running ability is freak show scary and going to be used, if you're wise about it, more than almost any other quarterback. But but make no mistake, Lamar Jackson's a passer, and they've wisely plopped him right behind a guy who is sort of the antithesis, but is also, in a lot of ways, an NFL prototype kind of guy. And they do play behind Joe Flacco. Like, if you think about, think about this. Lamar Jackson, in an offense that is power run heavy, with speed wide receivers that you have to cover often enough in man that Lamar Jackson's going to get opportunities to fuck you right up with his legs. I am scared to death of that team going forward. Yeah, I agree. I've been telling people ever since it happened, I'm just like, well, once, once, uh, once Ben retires, it looks like the Ravens are going to be taking over the AFC North. So I don't trust the team owned by Jimmy Haslam. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) Obviously I don't. The two Browns organizations could be the ones instead of uh, instead of the others. Maybe we'll get a, maybe we'll get a turn. There's certainly a lot of talent on the team. I feel, um, yeah. you know, I thought the Ravens did a, a a nice job the whole way through in their draft, as they tend to do. Ozzy got a bunch of stuff that I think makes sense for them. I was really yet again sort of not all that impressed by what Pittsburgh did. I'm not scared by Mason Rudolph, I, although I thought it was a perfectly reasonable pick for them um, and, a, and a guy that's a decent quarterback prospect and probably has a good shot to be better than Landry Jones, and that makes him valuable to their organization one way or another. So I don't, I don't think it's a bad pick, but I don't worry that, oh, they've got Big Ben part two. Like, that's not where I am on Mason Rudolph. And frankly, I'd, I'd love to play a game in December that was really super windy against Mason Rudolph in Cleveland. And I'll leave it at that. Um, Unless it's like the last two years where the Browns are terrible. Well, and you'd have to have Steelers a team that mattered in the first playoffs. place, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, I didn't think Pittsburgh did anything. You know, they took Edmonds, who was sort of a surprise. That was like the surprise pick of the first round. I don't think a lot of people thought he was going that high. But, you know, and far be it for me to doubt the Steelers because the record speaks for itself. And it is thorough, um, but I have I have thought for a number of years that their drafts weren't always on point lately, and and frankly, I thought I have thought they have continued to do a nice job to sort of band aid all that. Not not unlike the Patriots in some ways. The Patriots aren't always killing the draft, but they do a really nice job fixing their holes quickly, and that is one thing the Browns have not done, and that I think they actually. I'm I'm reluctant to praise it, but I that I think they actually did pretty well this offseason. They attacked things that they desperately needed. They did it with competent people, and then they did it with high end rookies. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. So we'll see we'll see how that turns out. What about I can't even remember off the top of my head what Cincinnati did. Do you have any of that in your mind? Yeah, they got Billy Price in round one. Well, that was a center good pick. from Ohio State. That was so a good I pick. think he's a very solid guy. I mean, that that surprised a lot that's of people. A, that's a decade long that starter. High. They they need that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And they needed a center bad. So well, they need all kinds of offensive line at this point because they now have to right. deal with an awful lot of trouble in state. Yeah, yeah. Um, Billy Price was a good pick for them. I remember thinking that there were a couple of guys that they had drafted that 
you know, fit, fit what I, you know, sort of thought they were trying to do. I continue to wonder why they don't think they need a quarterback. Yeah. They got Sam Hubbard too. It's another guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they've got some players out of that draft, but I got to tell you, I think Joe Goodberry, no, I, I know Joe Goodberry at Joe Goodberry on Twitter, who is, um, I don't mean to denigrate anybody else, but my absolute favorite Cincinnati Bengals follow, and I've been following Joe for years, and he was on my old podcast years ago, and uh, hopefully we'll get him on this year to preview a Bengals game or two. But Joe had a tweet just today, I believe, that was, you know, looking forward, who has the better roster, Cincinnati or Cleveland? And I have to admit, I have to admit, I think the answer is Cleveland. It's the first time in a long time I've thought that. You know, there are there's an argument at worst. I th- I feel like the high end talent on Cleveland. I mean, if you took AJ Green and Geno Atkins off of Cincinnati, what are they? Right now, today, they've lost a lot. Isn't that like saying take Miles Garrett and Joel Batonio off Cleveland, though? No, I, mean, I think the Browns still have yeah. more talent in a lot of places at that point. <sighs> I could be underestimating yeah. some of the no-name guys in I, Cincinnati. I, their defensive line still that's remains. That's the way that I view them. That, that's the thing. See, that's, that's how I view these other teams in the AFC North. Because, like, you were talking about the Steelers draft, and the point that I always love to make with them is, well, like, I honestly, I was making jokes on Twitter about Terrell Edmonds because I had never heard of him. I was like, oh, they took a fake name, blah, 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 you know, just making jokes. But the thing is, that pick will probably work out because it's the Steelers and they know exactly what they want. Oh, they make those coaches no forever. mistake. The GM forever. And the Bengals are the same way. They've had the head coach who basically is well, the GM forever. I, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there. Well, same thing though. I mean, they take guys like Carl Lawson last year in the fourth sure. round and they turn them into good players and like they do this year after year. Yes, they have their misses, but everybody across the NFL has their misses on the whole. I just the think they've been leaking talent. I mean, they have William Jackson, who was one of the best corners in the league last year. That's a guy that people don't think of. I mean, they have, they have guys coming up. I expect John Ross to turn it around. Andy Dalton is still a That's middle a bold one. I will take that bet, but I agree with you on the whole. Uh, on the whole, I, I like Ross. I mean, he's got to stay healthy, but I, I just we'll see what happens. But I just think that for the most part, the Bengals they They're, know how to you find can't question solid what they've guys. done over the past 15, 20 years. I agree. You just can't. Joe Mixon. I mean, Joe Mixon's a hell of a talent at running back. Well, nobody like, questioned the talent, right? But <laughs> you know, I, I don't disagree with your point. Ultimately, yeah. what I'm looking and at is the Bengals. The bang, but I don't. I just about. don't view the Bengals as on the same level as the Steelers for obvious reasons. But I um, don't either. But I'm saying that they're far beyond everybody in the, the AFC North. Everybody in the AFC North has for 20 years consistently put good football teams on the field, except the Browns. Yeah, that's that's my point. Yeah, everybody. It's the to me yep. it's it has been the best division in football, top to bottom, forever. And the Browns better get their shit together if they want to compete in it. I think that's ultimately the point you're making. Is like it's all fine and good to have all this talent, but you it's that yeah, I go back to my so I have a back in the day when I had a two hundred listener podcast, the we, the thing I used to say about the Steelers is that the Pittsburgh Steelers just know how to win 
And that's all they did every fucking week. They go out there and they figure out how to beat you. And some weeks they beat you into the ground. And some weeks they snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And some days they just eke out a nice workmanlike victory. But rest assured, most of the fucking time, the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win the game. And that is not an accident. That is not just them drafting Big Ben. That is them having decades and processes and philosophies that are aligned and coherent and cohesed to forever. And the Browns are at the very, the Browns are still in the batter's box. The Steelers are on their seventh home run trot. We're in here digging in for the first time. So as I look at this team, I agree with something you said earlier, which is there's an awful lot of talent that this was probably offline, but you were talking about talent collecting versus team building. There's, there's a lot of talent on the Browns. And the question now is whether they can build a team out of it. Exactly. And that's where the character stuff comes into play. And we've seen a lot of people really hammer Dorsey lately, smart people like Jeff Risden, who's I think at Jeff Risden on Twitter, great Browns lions follow, but he, he really hammered John Dorsey for, the character risks. I mean, this is a team that's trying to build a culture right now. And you're bringing guys like Callaway into the building. And I think Simeon Thomas is another one. And then there's some undrafted free agents as well that, that have some questions in their background. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going there with Mayfield, but he did get arrested. I mean, I'm not holding that against him. I don't <laughs> think that's any, but still, <laughs> well, if did, that's the test, we'll talk about all kinds of people, but, but look, ultimately I, I think we, still. I, I'm with you, but I, but I also think Mayfield. Uh, look, I know I wasn't making that point. I was just adding another. Yeah. He still did. though. No, Some true people enough. Would say that. True so enough. It's not fair for me to mention the other guys without mentioning him. No, it's but really I'll just point fair. to Peyton Manning and walk on. Yeah. So, um, just another point on the whole conversation about this too, with catching up to them is, I mean, I know that, Nobody likes Hugh Jackson, but if you get rid of him, you're moving on to another offense. You're moving on to another defense. These guys are all, their heads are spinning in again next off season and they're all learning something new. I mean, I know that we've seen the McVeighs of the world come along and turn teams around in one year, but it's, it's easier said than done. So we've seen the reboot over and over and over with new systems and new schemes and all that shit. So like, it would be nice to have something for longer than five minutes for once. I mean, you don't see the Steelers, the Bengals, the Ravens. You don't see them firing their coach every two years. I know I that, hate that had, I'm forced to agree with this point. But the continuity, it's not continuity for the sake of it. It's, it's just keeping something together because you know that it works better than just quitting over and over and over and like, players bust because they have a new system every year and they don't get to work on their craft every off season because they're focused on learning a new defense or learning a new offense or learning a new role or you know having coaches that don't like them it's just there's an advantage to keeping (laughs) it's fucked yeah there's an advantage to this coaching staff keeping their job i know that people don't like the sound of it i don't even like the sound of it honestly because I'm extremely unimpressed with what the coaching staff's done to this point. 
show me W's. Amen. And with that, I think we can wrap it. Seven wins. Oh, seven, seven, seven. I even I would grant them a stay of execution with seven wins. I agree. And with that, I think uh, I think we leave you, Mr. Leister. Any parting words for the people? Nope. They don't call him the best color man in the game for nothing, folks. That's Brendan Leister at Brendan Leister on Twitter from the heart of Ohio. We'll be back next week.